if we're honest, uh, many of us, we have our Bibles and we read our Bibles and we believe our Bibles. We believe that they're true. But if we're honest, for many of us in America, um, large swaths of our Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, might as well be blank pages <laughs> because we just don't read them very often. Haggai is one of those books. We don't, uh, one of the small, minor, so-called minor prophets in the Old Testament. And um, many people don't read the Old Testament. And part of it is because of its difficulty. There are books like the book of Haggai where you, you start reading it and you're really not sure where it fits in the timeline and history and you know that you have to understand some other history and those kinds of things to make sense of that book. And, and sometimes we're pressed for time, and sometimes we don't have, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the understanding of history to fit this into how it, how it works out. And, and so we just, we just read other portions of Scripture rather than those books, and we just avoid many, many of those Old Testament minor prophets and some of the major prophets. How many of you have had devotions in the book of Ezekiel? You know, it's not easy. Uh, there's a lot of, there's, there's a, some great material there, but it's not easy. And uh, it takes, takes a lot of work sometimes. Well, this book, uh, Book of Haggai, is one of those books that oftentimes is neglected. And so just kind of as a review of where we've been, but also as a help to you as you, as you study, I, in, inside your note-taking outline is a book chart this morning. And uh, just another, another chart called The Names of God, how, how God is referred to in the book of Haggai. I have a slight correction to the book chart. You'll see that under topics in the first column, it's blank. What should be in there is it should say first rebuke. That is, in, in that section of, of Haggai, what, what is God doing through the prophet Haggai? He's rebuking the nation of Israel. And then uh, the, the uh, third column under uh, where it says first rebuke, that should actually say second rebuke. And then the rest of the chart is accurate. Okay, I don't know how I missed that, but when I was making up the chart, I, I missed it. Now, I've said before that this book takes place in 520 B.C. In fact, we, we know with particular uh, uh, authority that this book happened at a particular day in 520 B.C. In fact, it was 520 B.C., December 18th. We know that because of secular authority. Uh, uh, kings and uh, other historical dates that we can date around this book. For instance, when it says, it opens up uh, in this chapter saying uh, in the uh, 21st day of the ninth month of uh, the second year of Darius the king. We know when Darius reigned. We know when his reign began. We know when it ended. So, that, that, so we know when the second year was, and that means we know when the ninth month was, and we know what the ninth month on the 21st day in the calendar that they were using, we know that if, we, if they were using the calendar that we use today, that would be 520 B.C., December 18th. In other words, 2000, you, you do the math, 2000 plus three days, we're on the 18th of uh, uh, we're, we're on the 15th, they were on the 18th of December at this point. And, and it's at a latitude, uh, Jerusalem is at roughly the same latitude as we are. 
slightly further south, but not much. Just uh, if you were in, um, in uh, Gainesville, Georgia, you would be about where uh, Jerusalem is. So roughly the same time of year, roughly the same climate, it gets a little bit warmer in uh, Jerusalem at that time of year, um, but 2,520, uh, what is that, two, 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 39, 39 years, 2,539 years uh, from this day. And, and at Manchester, we're committed to learning the Scripture. We have a passion for God's Word because God has spoken to this world. He has spoken in sending His Son to this world, and He has spoken in, in words to this world. Words in Christianity are important. History is important in Christianity. Christianity is not a theory. Christianity is not a philosophy. It has theories and philosophies connected to it, but at its base, Christianity is grounded in real history. We take history seriously. We take the Word of God seriously. We want to have a passion for God and a passion for His Word because a passion for His Word reflects our passion for God. We want to take all of that seriously, and that's what this book and this series has been about. The title of this morning's message is simply God's Commitment to Bless His People. And this is the third message that Haggai got uh, from, from God during this, this time period. This whole book takes place in less than 120 days in 520 B.C. And we're coming to the, the last of those messages this week and next week that occurred, both of them, on this 21st day of, uh, of, the, sixth, of the ninth month uh, of Haggai. So if you would... Uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, that is, meat that's been offered in sacrifice to God, and it touches with his, with his fold of his clothing uh, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it, the things that are touched, become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider this. From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the, prophets, uh, all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. 
Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, was uh, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing but from this day on. I will bless you. You may be seated. I'm going I'm to walk down the, here and get something that I forgot. That's why I've stumbled with my thinking, because I couldn't see. Um, I need my reading glasses. You know, what is going on with this text? What is happening here? Uh, these obscure references and these obscure uh, questions that are asked here. And it's really pretty simple. God has been saying to Israel that, look, I, I've been trying to get your attention. You have not been living for me. You have not been living for my glory. Instead, you have been living for your own comfort, your own convenience, your own security. You have been living for the paneling that you could do in your own house. Instead of bringing glory to me in the building and the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed. And I have been trying to get your attention. I have, that, that's why your crops have not uh, fared well. That's why your, the wine has not fared well. That's why all the products of your work, your hard work. Remember what he said in chapter 1? That you, you work and you labor and you strive and you put your money into a purse that has holes. And then God says, because I blew it all away. I was trying to get your attention. I was trying to help you to see that you needed to put me first in your life. And he's been saying that a number of different ways in this book. And now he says it again in this way. He, he comes and he tells them that, um, that he is, is, is uh, holy and they are not. And yet he desires to uh, bless them. Three different times in this book, you see here uh, twice in, in verse 18, you see this, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, and then down uh, the end of it, consider. He said, God's saying, I want you to think about this. I want you to consider this. I want you to set your heart on this. And I told you uh, uh, earlier in this series that that word, that Hebrew word that is translated consider here, is a word that means to set, t- take careful thought to the to take, uh, take a careful thought to the ways and the, uh, uh, of your thinking and behavior. That's what this word is all about. God wants them and he wants us to take careful examination, to examine our reality, the way that we're thinking about him and the way that we're thinking about life. He wants us to consider that. And he wants us to consider that in light of how he has dealt with uh, Israel at this time. So what is the book, this, this particular message about? Well, this particular message is about two things that God wants us to realize. That one, holiness is not contagious. Holiness is not contagious. That's the first question. Uh, ask the priest this. Let's get a ruling from the priest on this. If somebody has holy meat that has been turned over to God, that has been sacrificed to God, and they're holding it in the fold of their garment, and they're holding it. 
when, does the garment become holy? Does, does anything that that holy meat touches, does the thing that it touches become holy? And the priests give an immediate answer. No. No, that's, that's not the way it works. Holiness is not contagious. Just because you're around holy things, just because you do things that are supposedly holy, uh, doesn't mean that you are holy. Doesn't mean that I am holy. Holiness isn't contagious. You, you don't get it by, by coming to church. You don't get it by uh, hanging out with people who are better than you morally, if you can find them. Doesn't, that's not how it happens. You, you can't read your Bible and become holy. You, you know, how many of you have heard somebody say this? You should discuss this in your, in your home groups this week. Ever hear this? Well, my, my wife goes to church. She, she's, she, she, she takes care of both of us. You ever heard any of that? I've heard that. My, my, wife, my wife reads the Bible. She, you know, she's holy for all of us. I've heard husbands say that too. No, that's not how it works. So the first thing God wants Israel to know, the first thing he wants us to know is holiness isn't contagious. That's the first question. Then he comes back with another question. I've got another question for you uh, through Haggai. He says this in verse uh, 13. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, do those things become unclean? And the answer is immediate again. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that, if, it's unho- if, it's, if it's unclean, if it's unholy, and you touch it, anything else that it touches becomes unholy. You see, God was training the nation of Israel to recognize the difference between holy things and unholy things, and he was training them to remember that he alone in all the universe is the only one being who is holy. And he was training the nation to recognize this so that when the questions come to the priest, well, does, does, is holiness contagious? They say, no. Is uncleanliness contagious? And they say, yes. So then the punchline comes, right? Verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. You say, Pastor, this doesn't sound like a Christmas message. This is a real downer. I mean, we can't, we're not holy. Holiness isn't contagious. We can't hang around holy places and become holy. God is infinitely holy, and we are not. Furthermore, everything we touch, second point, is tainted and defiled. Everything we do to become holy or to move towards holiness doesn't work. That's that's what's happening here. The nation is being told, you're you're not holy. How many of you have ever been confronted on something that you had done wrong? Come on. I think we all have, right? At some point. Now, you've been confronted on something you've done wrong. 
and you, you begin to say, you know what, that's right, you know, I, I did blow it, that was wrong, you begin to start to make progress. You begin to start to do the right thing. How many of you, after you've started to do the right thing, start to think really well of yourself? Right? Well, I'm, I'm making improvements. I'm, I'm doing better, right? That's, that's our tendency. We, we, all, we all tend to... Um, uh, we, we tend to think we, to, that we... we uh, how do I want to say this? We overstate our goodness and we understate our badness. We overestimate our good behavior and we underestimate our bad behavior. Israel has, had been confronted in the first chapter of this book uh, about uh, three and a half months before this message comes. And they had started to build the temple. They, they had worked for 50 days and then they had uh, on rebuilding the temple. And they uh, had made some progress, but the progress wasn't that great. We talked about this last week. They had started to make some progress, but when they, they themselves looked at the foundation of the new temple, they looked at it and some of them wept as they compared it in their minds to the glory of the temple that existed before it was destroyed and before the nation was taken out of uh, the Holy Land and taken away to Babylon. But now they've been back. Got, they started to work on the temple. Then they got discouraged. They stopped working for 16 years. And then they, uh, God confronted them and said, look, you're living in your own paneled houses. You're living for your own material um, security and comfort. You're not living for my glory. I brought you back to the land. I want you to build my temple. Now get to the work. And they repent. They immediately repent. And they start doing the right thing. And they start making progress. God comes back in and, and says in this message, I know you've made some progress. But you need to remember. Everything you do still falls short. Everything you do is defiled and tainted. Now that's a downer. That's discouraging. But it's headed in a direction that will bring glory to God and it's headed in a direction that will eventually bring comfort to these people. And the comfort is, is not in the two things that God wants us to realize, but it's in the one thing that he is about to state in just a moment here. He wants the nation first to realize that the holiness that God desires from us is not something you can catch by coming in contact with holy things or starting to do the right things. Should we do the right things? Yes. Should, should, we, should we behave well? Yes. Should we care for others? Yes. Should we love one another even when one another is hard, when we are hard to love? Yes. Yes, we should do all of those things. And yet, the reminder is, we're going to fall short. So why is God saying these two things? Why does he want them to uh, understand these things? See, our holiness is not something we catch like a common cold. You don't get it because you hang around holy people. You don't get it because you know Mother Teresa. You don't get it because you act like uh, Mother Teresa. The Pope can't give you holiness. Your pastor, your priest can't, can't give you holiness. Your rituals can't give you holiness. But you need holiness. You need it. Because God dwells in a holy place 
and he is preparing a place for only those who will be holy. So how do we get holiness? We get holiness by an act of grace from God, where God, knowing that we fall short, says that he is going to bless us, which is exactly what God says next. The text goes on, verse 16. Some, some more reminder, verse 15. Now then consider, from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, that is, before you'd done anything, you'd fallen short before you had done anything. Uh, I want to remind you, how did you fare? When, when one came to, he, to a heap of 20 measures, and there was about 10, you, you went to get... Uh, some, some flour and you thought that there were 20 measures of flour in the cupboard and yet there was only 10. He says, you haven't done very well. You haven't been blessed. The things that you've been working so hard at have not been productive for you. Then he comes back and says this, um, I struck you when, when you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures and there were 20. You thought there was more than there was and now, now you realize there's, there's nothing there. I struck you with, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Somebody do this. Somebody on this side. Look up verse, uh, Amos chapter 4, verse 9. Somebody over here, look up Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 22. Somebody do that. I'm going to ask the Deuteronomy 28, 22. Whoever gets there first, read it out loud so everybody can hear. This is God speaking through Moses to the nation of Israel saying, when you do right, Certain things are going to happen. When you do wrong, other things are going to happen. Who's going to read that over here? Coit? Uh, the Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fire and heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew. And they will pursue you until you perish. So this has been the pattern God had set up way back in the time of Moses. When you, when you live for my glory, you will be blessed. But when you depart from my glory, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen. And so God reminds them, live, live for my glory because these things are going to happen. And then that should be, when those things happen, that should be the reminder, the wake-up call to the nation, hey, we need to return to the Lord. How about the Amos 4.9? Somebody over here. So again, the same phrase, yet you have not returned. Yet you have not returned. Why does God discipline? Because he wants us to return to him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to live for him. So that's what's going on. Now, consider this. Those things happen. But consider this, verse 18. From this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundations of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? And the answer is, it's December. Yeah, the seed is still in the barn. Yeah, it's not planting season yet. So you don't, you, your, your fortunes have not changed yet. You're not doing better yet. You, you've gone to the cupboard and there's been nothing there. And now you've got to get through the winter and you don't know how you're going to do it. Then he says this. Indeed, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. These are, these are staples 
of the diet and of the economy in that time. And you have nothing. But, God says, from this day forward, from this day on, I will bless you. What is God saying? He says, holiness isn't contagious. You need holiness. Everything you touch is not holy. It's tainted. Yet, God has determined to bless us, his people. Before they'd done anything of any significance, before they'd started to plant, God says, from this day forward, watch me. I'm going to bless you. And God's saying to them that he has all the grace that they need to solve the holiness problem that they don't have. See, these are powerful words. They're words to the hearts of sinners like us. And what does he say in verses 15 through 17? He says, remember what it was like when you were not walking with me. Remember what it was like when you, you worked and you labored hard and you, you put it in a purse and the purse had holes and you never had enough to do anything. Remember those days. You don't want to come back to those days. You don't want to have those days in the future. You don't want to experience my discipline in the future. But because I love you, I will discipline you. I will try to bring you back. I will try to woo you. I think I've told you this story before. My father, when I was growing up, no parents do this today. Uh, I'm not advocating that you do this today. But I'll tell you, it was effective in my life. Um, My dad had a belt. And it was a wide belt. And he cut it into nine strips. I never got hit with it. I did get the belt a couple of times, but not the nine, the cat of nine tails. I never got that. He, he struck me with the belt when I needed to be disciplined, and I needed to be disciplined a lot growing up. And then he cut that belt into those nine strips and he hung it in the stairwell down to the basement. And the basement was where we played. I just had to see that belt. (laughs) And I knew I didn't want that. Right? That's what God's doing here. Remember what it was like? You went to the cupboard, you looked for 20, and and there was 10. You looked for 50, and there was 20. There there was nothing there. You remember what that was like? You don't want that again. I did that. I blew all of your your stuff away. I, I took all the products of your labor away. I took it away because I wanted you to come back to me. Why does a parent tell their child, their two-year-old child, not to ride their bike in the street. Tell me that. What? For their own protection, right? Is it because the parent hates the child and doesn't want them to have any fun? No. That's not why. The parent knows that for a two-year-old and a tricycle in the street, it's a dangerous place. Now, the two-year-old on a tri- tricycle in the, in the street looks at the street and says, in their mind, wide open spaces. 
Nothing to bang into, nothing to be careful about. No, no, nobody, no scratches on cars, you know, and all of those kinds of things. It's just wide open spaces. They think that the parent is being harsh, unreasonable. Who's right? The parents are right. People of God, when God tells you that one direction is going to ultimately be painful, even though it might look really good for the moment, who's right? God is. That's what he's saying to the nation of Israel. And, but he's saying something more, and he's saying something wonderful. He's saying, look, if you'll stay under my authority, if you'll stay under my direction, if you'll understand that holiness is not contagious, I'm holy and you're not. And I know that you're not. And, I know, and by the way, everything you try to do is tainted. It's defiled. It's unclean. Yet, yet, I love you. And I want to bless you. And in fact, I'm determined to bless you from this day forward. He's offering grace, right? So how should those who hear and understand, how should people respond to this message of grace? What should they do? Talk to me. What should they do? They should understand, yeah, that. What should their response be? What, what, what should that knowledge do in their heart when they've le- just learned that God knows that everything that they do is... Here, here, this is what God's saying. All you parents have done this. Your two-year-old gives you some scratchings on a paper, multiple colors, and they tell you, Mommy, do you like my horse? And you look at it, and it's the strangest looking horse you've ever seen. You're thinking, let me get it. No, Mommy, you have it upside down. (laughs) Really? But what does Mommy do? She, She receives it, even though it's not what it should be or could be, right? It's not the representation. She receives it in love, and she blesses her child. And that's what God does here. Everything you offer me is substandard. (laughs) But I love you. And I'm determined to bless you. How should you respond to, to that? You should respond by saying... Lord, because we're not children, we're adults, we should, we should re- respond when God tells us these things. Lord, I repent of all my failure. I want to be right. I know I can't be, but I thank you that by your grace, you love me still. Now, the full answer to how to respond doesn't come until the New Testament. When, when Jesus comes and he lives a sinless life, nobody here has ever lived a sinless life, But Jesus lives a sinless life and then he voluntarily lays his life down as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of every one of us who have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what's going on in this passage. It's a prefiguration of the gospel itself in the offer of grace and forgiveness and blessing from the heart of God for us. 
And God says, yes, I will bless you. And Christ, and in Christ, the blessing continues. The only way for holiness to be transferred is by direct contact with him. And today, you can make direct contact with a living, loving, grace-filled uh, God who delights to bless when his people turn and run to him for forgiveness. You can do that today if you've never done it before. Because, men and women, your life does not, your life, you should run towards Christ because your life depends on it. You have no hope, any one of us, your pastor, the pastor's wife, none of us has any hope, any lasting hope apart from a relationship with Christ. For, for real happiness, not only in this life, but forever. I wrote last week um, that there's, there's nothing, God cannot create an eternal life that is not filled with more happiness than you could ever imagine. He can't do it because he's a perfect being. And he can only do that which is perfect. And so it, the eternal life that he offers us and the forgiveness of sins that he offers us is perfect. There's no boredom in heaven. It's a place of beauty and holiness. And God envelops the whole environment with his glory. So what should we do? Well, what to do? For believers, what should believers do? Believers should continually bask in the wonder of being loved by God. Continue to repent and trust in him. That's what all of us who have believed in Christ, we should do. Jesus told a parable at one point. Of, um, uh, of the two uh, people who had a great debt. And one is forgiven this debt, and one is forgiven this amount of debt. I mean, it's, it's an ex- the, the numbers are extraordinary. One, one owes like two months' uh, rent, and the other owes like something like that would be the equivalent of, um, you know, 30, 40 years' rent. And then he asked the question, when both of them get forgiven of their debt. Tell me, Simon, which of the two do you believe uh, loved most? And Simon answered, well, I suppose it was the one who was forgiven the greatest debt. And Jesus agrees. So what does that tell us? It tells us that for those of us who have believed, when, when my love for God and my passion to live passionately for and like Christ begins to wax and wane, begins to diminish, begins to be, I begin to be bored with the things of God, bored with the Bible. When those things are happening, don't look at anybody else. Nobody else is the cause of that. It's where you have gone in your relationship with God. You've forgotten how much you've been forgiven. God owes you, owes me nothing. But he offers us everything in the gospel, in the good news of the gospel that starts at Christmas time when God becomes a man with the intention of laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice. 
So what should I do? What should you do? What should anybody who says that they are a Christian, what should they do? We should bask in this love, this wonder of being loved by God, and we should continually every day, Lord, I want to be better tomorrow than I was today. I want to be better today than I was yesterday. I want to represent you better to the world than I ever have before. And tomorrow I'm going to pray the pr- same prayer. Lord, I want, to be, I, I want to represent you better tomorrow than I did the ba- day before and the day after that. Lord, I want to represent you today better than I did yesterday and better still tomorrow. And we ought to be praying that every day and reminding ourselves of how much we have been forgiven. Reminding ourselves with the knowledge that everything we do is tainted. But everything he does is perfect. And then second, what, what, what should those of you that have never believed in Christ, what, you, you've not believed in Christ, what should you do? Well, you should bask in the wonder of being loved by God. And, and you should repent and believe in him starting today. You should recognize that you have a need for a Savior, and that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus, his name means he who saves, the one who saves, and Emmanuel who comes to be with us, who lives with us. God, Emmanuel, God lives with us. God with us. You should do the same thing. We're all on the same foot. We're, we're all in the same boat. Actually, we're all in the same ocean. Drowning. And the gospel is the boat that rescues us. You know, that was one of the early Christian metaphors for the church. One of the early Christian me- metaphors that began to emerge early in the church, church's history was the boat as a symbol of salvation because people are rescued into the boat. And the only way they can get to heaven is to be in the boat that is the church that is in Christ. That's what is offered in the book of Haggai, 520 years before the time of Christ, and 2019 years after the birth of Christ. Same gospel. So the worship team is going to come, and they're going to help us to, to, uh, to take these things that we've been studying and to think about them and meditate on them and take them to uh, the Lord in song and in worship. But I want to invite... Everybody who has believed in Christ, take these things to heart. If your heart has grown cold toward the things of God, what you need to do is, is re-imagine being lost and know that you've been rescued. And continue to repent and believe. And if you have not believed, what should you do? Repent and believe. And from this moment on, receive Christ as your Savior. And know that His desire for all of us is to bless us. Is that not great news? God wants to bless us. Let's sing about that. Don't you stand?